This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Saturday morning, Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. As always, we're thankful that you are with us. Uh, Going to start out this week uh, with a little reminder that I do have Patrick Connor coming online with us about 11.15 today. He is the State Director for the National Federation of Independent Business, and he will be discussing with us some of the legislation that is working its way through Olympia that has impact on all of us. Let's start out, though, talking about the weekly wrap-up for the week. And the week got started off on a softer note as investors took some of the money off the table following a strong showing this month. Entering Monday, the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 were up 11% and 6% respectively in January. The early weakness was precipitated by an article in the Wall Street Journal by Nick Tameros indicating that Fed officials were concerned that inflation could reaccelerate due to a tight labor markets. Mr. Tameros added in a Monday article that the Fed's interest rate strategy could depend on how much members believe the economy will slow down. There's also an element of trepidation behind Monday's week showing ahead of several market-moving data releases, including the fourth quarter employment cost index, the January ISM ISM releases, and the January employment situation report. In addition, market participants were cognizant that more than 100 S&P 500 companies would be reporting earnings this week, headlined by Meta platforms, Apple, Alphabet, and Amazon. Sentiment started to shift on Tuesday as investors looked intent on closing out a strong month on an upbeat note. Participants were also driven by a sense that the Fed may be compelled to pause its rate hikes in the near future following a pleasing fourth-quarter employment cost index and some weaker-than-expected January Chicago PMI and consumer confidence data. The latter point was collaborated in a Wall Street Journal article by Nick Tamaris that suggested that the Employment Cost Index report could increase the possibility of Fed officials agreeing to pause the rates hike sooner rather than later. A strong rebound effort took root on Wednesday, this following the FOMC's unanimous decision to raise the target range for Fed funds by a quarter of a percent or 25 basis points to 4.5 to 4.75% as expected, and Fed Chair Powell's press conference where he did not go into... did, did where he <clears throat> I'm sorry where he did not go out of his way to rein in the market's rebound enthusiasm. Mr. Powell acknowledged that the full effects of the rapid tightening so far have yet to be felt and we have more work to do and he also indicated that core services inflation is still running too high, which creates a basis for ongoing rate hikes. Overall, though, Mr. Powell was generally encouraging about the emerging signs of of disinflation. Importantly for market participants, he did not condemn uh, loosening financial conditions and maintained that he thinks there is a path of getting inflation back down to 2% without a really significant economic decline or significant increase in unemployment. A huge earnings-driven gain by Meta Platforms fueled a continuation of the rally effort at the start of Thursday's session. Meta's pleasing results on the heels of Fed Chair Powell's press conference, where he took a less aggressive tone, fueled a sense that earnings growth and monetary policy may be better than feared this year. Positive reactions to some data releases Thursday morning also helped the upside bias. A pleasing fourth-quarter productivity report, which featured a moderation in unit labor costs, left the market feeling good about inflation trends. And separately, weekly initial jobless claims hit their lowest level of 183,000 since April of 22. But that did not deter the rally effort. 
as it was construed as another good portent of a possible soft landing. The rally did hit an air pocket, though, when the S&P 500 failed to clear the 4,200 level. The pullback was likely driven by a feeling that the market had gotten overbought and overextended and was due for some consolidation. The downturn did not last long, however, and the main indices were able to climb back towards session highs ahead of Thursday's closing bell. But to be fair, a sizable loss in Merck following its quarterly results kept the price-weighted Dow Industrial Average in negative territory for most of Thursday's session. The final session of the week turned out to be a losing session, with disappointing earnings and or guidance from Alphabet, Amazon, Starbucks, and Ford dictating action along with a surprising strong gain in January non-farm payrolls up 517000 and a stronger-than-expected January ISM services PMI, which hit 55.2%, and that marked a return to growth mode. I'll cover that more on tomorrow's show. The strong data created some doubts as to whether the Fed will pause the rate hikes soon and cut rates at all before the end of the year. Treasury sold off sharply in response to the data release. The two-year note yield rose 21 basis points to 4.29%. The 10-year note rose 14 basis points to 3.53%. The U.S. dollar index rose 1.2% to 102.96. And separately, the Fed Fund's futures market is now accounting for the, accounting, accounting for the prospect of a third quarter percent basis rate hike in May. According to CME FedWatch Tool, the probability of a rate hike in May, in addition to the one that is fully priced in in for March, increased to 61.8% from 30% on Thursday. Many stocks pulled back on profit-taking efforts following the earnings and economic news. Apple, however, which came came up shy of earnings estimates for the December quarter, was not among them. Granted, Apple declined 2% off the open, but quickly rebounded and finished the day up 2.4% as investors seemingly believed its shortcomings may be short-lived. Only three S&P 500 sectors registered losses for the week. Energy down 5.9%, healthcare down a tenth of 1%, utilities were down 1.5%. While communication services were up 5.3%, information technology up 3.8%, consumer discretionary up 2.3%, and those sort of sectors that logged in the biggest gains. So year-to-date up through uh, Friday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now up 2.3%. The NASDAQ, which is your small-cap stocks, is up over 14.7%. The S&P 500 is up 7.7%, and the Russell 2000 is up 12.7%. Let's take a look at some of our high-frequency data for the week. Initial jobless claims for the week ending January 27th were at 183,000. That was an additional drop of 1.6%. Continuing jobless claims as of the 20th of January, 1,655,000. That was also a slight decline of 1.2%. Box office receipts continue to take another big hit, down 18%. Rail traffic uh, was up 1.3%. Steel production up 9 tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy up 3.9%. Restaurants showed a nice increase as of February 1st, up 9%. Uh, TSA check checkpoint data as of February 2nd, however, 1,858,162 passengers a day checking through. That was a decrease of 1.2%. The supply of motor gasoline in the U.S. actually was an increase of about 4.3%. And global commercial flights as of the 2nd of February, 104,771,000. That was an increase of 2% in the number of global flights. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. We're going to be back in a minute. I'm going to have Patrick Connor joining us. Thank you for being with us. We'll be right back. Bad credit can be like a real bad odor. Follow you around when you're trying to get a motor. Luckily for you, there's some guys in town saying, Don't sweat the crunch, come get your car now. Liquidation Car Company, home of the zeros, zero interest, zero credit checks, and zero pressure. Great car selection from a business you can trust and service you can count on. Visit Liquidation Car Company today online at liquidationcar.com or follow the American flags to 5250 Guide Meridian at and get rolling again. Cascade Radio Group has a full-time opening for a news reporter to join our growing team at News Talk KGMI. 
The ideal candidate has both journalism and broadcasting experience. Responsibilities include gathering, writing, and recording news stories, producing and hosting an afternoon news hour, and updating station websites and social media. Annual salary ranges from $40,000 to $42,000 depending on experience plus benefits. Email air check, resume, and writing sample to hperson at cascaderadiogroup.com. Cascade Radio Group is an equal opportunity employer. Hey, at our startup, my team and I move at the speed of tech 24-7. And every single day, it's information overload. It's coming at me from all directions. And you know what? Bottom line, I just need the news that matters. So where do I turn? Local radio and TV. I want to hear from people who live and work in my town. They give me the real story with information I know I can rely on. So where else can I find out what's happening in my community? weather and traffic, things that affect my family and my business. I want to stay informed by sources I trust, my local radio and TV stations, for the best entertainment, sports, news, traffic, and weather with no agenda and more reliable than other platforms. So if you ask me for the information I want anytime, anywhere, I stay local. Support your local station. Text RADIO to 52886 today. Furnished by the NAB and this station. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop to opt out. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up. Welcome back to World League of Life. Saturday morning here in KGMI. We're Asset Advisors. We're located out on the Pacific Highway. That's out next to Wilson's Furniture in the Pacific Commerce Center. Address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. Okay, as I announced at the start of the show, we have uh, Patrick Connor with us today. Patrick is the state director for the National Federation of Independent Business and very busy this time of year down in Olympia representing small business in this state. So, Patrick, welcome back. Thanks so much, Dick. Always a pleasure. Well, hey, just to put a little plug in here, I notice in your weekly summary that you're talking about your small business day, and that's on March 16th. I want to just talk for a second about what that is. You bet. Uh, that's Bar Hill Visit Day, we invite small business owners from across the state to join us in Olympia. Uh, we kick off the day usually with policy briefings from legislators serving on key committees or who are champions on specific bills that we are supporting. Uh, find out what is happening up to the minute uh, at the legislature. And then in the afternoon, we send folks up to meet with their local lawmakers, uh, attend committee hearings, and sometimes they even testify on bills that we are concerned about that may be up for a hearing that day. Sounds like a really exciting day for small business people. That sounds great. It is. And uh, thanks to our sponsors, there's uh, no cost to attend. So uh, if folks are interested, I hope they'll check us out at nfib.com slash Washington. nfib.com slash Washington. Okay. Okay, what I'm going to do here, uh, your notes note that this was a a little bit of a light week maybe before the storm. Uh, I noticed that you didn't have a lot of legislative items this week in your summary, but let's go ahead and talk about the things that are currently on the agenda that you're working on, and then let's go back maybe and look at some of your previous weeks. So this is the fourth week of the legislature. Uh, So let's just go ahead and go down your list and talk about, uh, start out with your House Bill 1136, which is Employee Expense Reimbursement. That sounds like an interesting item. I'm not sure where that's coming from, in fact. That just, uh, uh, just seems like a no-brainer to me, but go ahead. Well, it's actually coming from the trial lawyers, um, and as they often do, uh, they put legislation forward that, in this particular case, would allow a worker to sue an employer if there was a disagreement about a purchase the employee made uh, that may not have been authorized by the employer. So NFIB actually led the negotiations with the uh, Washington Employment Lawyers Association. We took out the provision that created a new private right of action, that right to sue first, and in this case sue only, uh, as the bill initially started, and instead made this basically the same process as we use for wage claim violations. 
So in that case, if a worker feels like they haven't been paid correctly uh, and they can't satisfy themselves talking to their employer, they can go to the Department of Labor and Industries, file a claim, LNI then investigates, uh, and if they determine that there is wrongdoing by the employer, the employer's got to make it right. They've got to pay that worker. Uh, and sometimes penalties may apply if it is a knowing and willful violation. And at the end of the day, if the worker is not satisfied with what the department comes up with, they still have the right to sue. So we think that this is a, a workable compromise that passed on Friday, allowing workers to be reimbursed for legitimate business-related expenses they incur on behalf of their employer. Uh, and if there is some dispute, there's an administrative process before everybody's got to try and lawyer up and go, in this case, I think, <laughs> generally the small claims court, in order to get some kind of relief. So is there not is there some type of a, an example of the type of items we're talking about here that are, they're bringing this issue up? I mean, it seems like a little extreme to me. I mean, I can see if you're traveling to a conference or something like that where you should be reimbursed, but uh, gee whiz, you know, if they, somebody buys a pen or a, pen, a roll of tape or something, is that all included in this? Well, we did give the Department of Labor and Industry some rulemaking authority to clarify that because those are exactly the kinds of disputes that we heard testimony. Um, for instance, we had a, a small contractor who said, look, we use this particular brand of uh, hand tools. And if a worker decides they like this other brand better and goes out and buys them, instead of using our company tools, would we have to uh, reimburse them there? And the other side of the us that no, that's not the, their intent. But if, uh, for instance, uh, okay. let's say one of your microphones breaks down in the middle of this broadcast, and you send somebody out to uh, pick up a replacement microphone, uh, that should be a covered expense, right? It's being that, done. that would seem legitimate to me. I'm just kind of yeah. curious how <laughs> how broad this thing or where this is coming from. What's creating the problem? I mean, that doesn't even seem like it's a... Uh... Well, it does seem to be um, a solution in need of a problem, but apparently there are occasionally some complaints about these things where workers have gone out. We did hear some examples, and, and they seemed rather egregious. Uh, and I think all of them actually involved agriculture, where uh, some folks were working on local farms, and the owner was an absentee. And so the individuals trying to manage the farm had to go out and purchase fertilizer. Um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember some of the other examples. But basically, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tools, fertilizers, those kinds of things. I mean, that, that would all seem legitimate. It's just kind of just right. wonder, how far is this thing going to go? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And if so, an employee decides they don't like the brand of coffee you got and they want to bring their own coffee? Yeah, that doesn't seem like a necessary expense. And that's one of the words in the bill. So, uh, you know, we'll try through rulemaking if this bill passes. And so far, it's only a minute out of one committee. But, yeah, those are the kinds of things that would not seem to be necessary expenses. Um you know, I guess some of us may quibble over whether or not our coffee in the morning is necessary, but you're right. It, it shouldn't be a matter of what brand somebody prefers and getting reimbursed for their Starbucks when uh, Seattle's best might do instead. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, well, always really interesting where they come up with some of these things. That's for I'm sure. I always well, I enjoy guess... reading these reports every week. And wonder, <laughs> where the hell is this coming from? <laughs> Pardon me. Okay. Well, wage claims bill, 2017, also in the House. Yeah, another one that's sort of um, a solution looking for a problem. The, this one actually is a bill being done at the behest of, a, I believe it's Seattle University School of Law professor and some of her students. So they claim that they have worked with um, some employees of, of different companies who were not paid properly or were not paid at all for some of the work that they did and were unsatisfied with the process they had to go through in order to recover those lost wages. Um, and certainly some of those stories, uh, <clears throat> it's hard not to be sympathetic. However, if you take a look at, at 3 million workers in this state and imagine the number of paychecks that are being issued every week, every two weeks, every month, uh, at the end of, of a uh, annual cycle here, L&I basically has, has uh, tracked this data, and they showed that there are 200 of these claims that actually got to the point to where some type of action had to be taken against an employer who didn't make a proper payment. Hmm. So out of the millions of paychecks we do every year, 200 cases are a problem. This bill says at the beginning that uh, if you're, as an employer, accused of, and they call it wage theft, uh, if you're accused of, of wage theft on one of these wage claims, 
then you would be assessed a 12% annual interest on the amount of money that you had not paid your employee and that uh, that penalty could not be waived unless the worker agrees to it. And then it lays out uh, a process where a work group would be formed, facilitated by the Department of Labor and Industries, and basically it's a, uh, a four-to-one imbalance of worker advocates to one business <laughs> representative. So we think we have an agreement, though, with the uh, Bill's prime sponsor to allow a representative of large business and a representative of small business, along with a union representative, a trial lawyer <laughs> representative, and an academic with a legal background in wage claims uh, and the Department of Labor and Industries. Uh, the other difficulty is they only want to give five months for this work group to go through data from all 50 states about their wage claim processes and recommend a new system for Washington. Uh, my experience has been you can't get enough people in the room in five months to be able to go through that kind of data. Uh, so we asked, and the sponsor seems to be willing to push this back to perhaps next November, giving them uh, at least a year, if not closer to 18 months, to actually do the real work that needs to be done, determine what the problem is and how to find a better solution if one is necessary. Now, I've noticed a couple of news items and maybe unrelated to this bill. Is, is part of this rotating around the use of interns? Uh, not directly, but there okay. is legislation that would make it to where everybody who has an intern has to pay that intern because, as you know, um, some firms uh, are able to work with institutions of higher education to offer mm-hmm. internships uh, where the students get the college credit mm-hmm. in exchange for working a couple hours a day uh, or working during the summer or you know school break, those kinds of things. But, uh, yeah, there is a bill out there that says if you have an intern, you got to pay them cash money in addition to the uh, academic credit that they may be receiving. Yeah, I'd hired interns from Western for about 25 years, but I always paid them. I didn't uh, never wanted to go through the the uh, qualifying process in order to go through them getting class credit for it. So I just outright paid them over all those years. So interesting. Okay, I'm also seeing you've got a bill that, uh, let's see here. I think we're going to go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back here in a minute. We'll come back talking about this apprentice mandate bill with the electricians. We'll be back in a second. Hi, it's Steve Mann. Have you heard the commercials for the Mark Patrick Stop Smoking seminars? And they said only $49.99, and it could work for you. So I thought, that's not even a week's worth of smoking. So I went, and guess what? It did work for me. You know, my friends and family are still amazed. I quit smoking. I didn't have cravings, anxiety, or weight gain. Listen, I don't know how it works, but I know it works because I'm living proof, and it's 100% guaranteed. So what do you got to lose? I'll tell you what you got to lose. A very bad habit. Join Mark Patrick Seminars and stop smoking without cravings, irritability, or weight gain for only $49.99 guaranteed. Don't just cut down, but stop smoking once and for all or your money back. Seminar, 2 p.m. on Sunday, February 19th at the La Quinta Inn and Suites by Wyndham Bellingham in Bellingham or 8 p.m. on Monday, February 20th at the Days Inn by Wyndham Mount Vernon in Mount Vernon. Registration 30 minutes before seminar. Sign up at markpatrickseminars.com. That's markpatrickseminars.com. Cascade Radio Group invites you to the first Chili and Chowder Charity Cook-Off this Sunday at Gruff Brewing in Bellingham. Your admission gets you tasting tickets and a vote. Sample from the best restaurants in Bellingham, then cast your vote for your faves. Ten-plus restaurants will be vying for your vote. Proceeds benefit domestic violence and sexual assault services of Whatcom County. The Chili and Chowder Charity Cook-Off this Sunday, Gruff Brewing, noon till 3. $15 at the door, benefiting DB SAS of Whatcom County. A 21 and older event. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. For many military veteran caregivers, their caregiving journey starts earlier in life and lasts longer. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. 
the latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Brief. A spy balloon is still hovering above the U.S. CBS's David Martin. The balloon is expected to be over the U.S. for a few more days and then out over the ocean. That will likely be the best chance to, as one official put it, dispose of it when it's safe. Well, it is freezing in the Northeast. The coldest spot, Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Frank Pereira's with the Weather Channel. The wind chills have been uh, dipping below 100 uh, from late yesterday through much of the overnight and continue to be, yeah, around 100 minus 6 is the current uh, wind chill at the top of Mount Washington. A New Jersey man was killed in Ukraine. He was there on a humanitarian effort. 33-year-old Pete Reed was working with global outreach doctors in Ukraine when he was killed. A statement from Global Outreach says Reed had stepped away from his role as board president to work in the field and render aid. That's CBS's Linda Kenyon. CBS News Brief. I'm Stacy Lynn. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you today. And on the line with us is Patrick Patrick is a state director for the National Federation of Independent Business, and we're talking about some of the legislation that is trying to work its way through Olympia this year. Uh, We've talked a little bit about uh, reimbursing employees for expenses they made and some wage claims, and now I guess we're going to go ahead and talk about this uh, electrician apprentice mandate. Yeah, we've got a couple of competing bills, uh, one that would be helpful for our small locally owned electrical companies, uh, the other one that would make it even harder to find workers who are qualified to sit for the electrician exam and then go to work as electricians uh, in the private sector. So about five years ago, the legislature passed a bill that basically sought to transition all training of all electric, uh, electrical workers into an approved apprenticeship program, which is code for a union (laughs) apprenticeship program in almost every case. Um, There is an institution, the Construction uh, Industry uh, Training Council, CITC, uh, and then a college in the Yakima area, area, Perry Tech, that do um, have training programs that qualify and uh, a good portion of those, I think, are are non-union students who are in those apprenticeship programs, but Mm -hmm. Those are two exam, uh, two exceptions, and by and large, every other training program in the state is union-owned and operated. So uh, basically, uh, local companies in Bellingham uh, who have traditionally brought somebody in and trained them themselves, uh, so they got the requisite number of hours and the training they needed in commercial and residential electrical work could then sit for the test uh, to become a journeyman electrician. So basically, the bill took away the right of those small businesses to do in-house training and instead is forcing everybody to go through a union program. Unfortunately, there's just not enough slots available for the people that would need to be trained. In addition, uh, there are some trainees, again, mostly with those uh, private companies that uh, were doing their own in-house training who aren't going to meet the hours needed requirements by the deadline in Uh, July. And so one of the bills seeks to give us two more years for those uh, apprentices being trained in-house by their employer to get the number of hours they need so they can still sit for the exam and be qualified then to be full-blown journeyman electricians. There's a competing bill that instead seeks to basically standardize and again require uh, union apprenticeship programs with 8,000 hours of uh, electrical construction trade training And of that, half, 4,000 hours, has to be in new industrial or commercial installations. So really um, making it even more difficult uh, to try and find people who qualify to sit for a journey exam. Uh, And God help you if you come from out of state, because if um, you don't have a program like what Washington State does with its apprenticeship process, 
you'd have to have at least 16,000 hours of out-of-state experience, of which at least 4,000 would have to be in new industrial or commercial installations. So really making it tough for folks who want to move to Washington from a jurisdiction that doesn't have the same kind of union-controlled apprenticeship apparatus that we do. Just seems unreasonable. And I mean, I drive around a fair amount and I see signs help wanted out here in front of electrical contractors and, you know, heating contractors and people like that that are doing electrical work. And I know some program companies up here have, have developed their own training programs because yep. they just weren't able to hire enough people. This just seems totally counterproductive. And then I guess I have to get a little political on this thought, but here they are talking about taking away the use of natural gas, for example, which would mean that mm-hmm. you need to have even more electrical hookups and stuff done. And uh, it just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. It seems like it's, it's well, just, it, it, just it continues to be sort of that majority in the legislature, their mindset that the only good job is a union job. Um, and unfortunately, uh, that just ignores the fact that there are a lot of very good paying jobs out there in the private sector where uh, folks can be trained on the job mm-hmm. uh, and can meet all the same requirements as somebody who goes through an apprenticeship program. So, uh, yeah, it's, it continues to be an uphill fight uh, to try and, and reinforce the fact that, look, particularly our small businesses, uh, just because they're small and they train in-house doesn't mean they're doing a bad job. In fact, many of them are doing a better job than these cookie-cutter apprenticeship programs, uh, you know, that just don't have the capacity to train all the people that want to get the training. Okay. So essentially we've covered both uh, House Bill 1393 yes. and 1462 with us, right? Correct. So okay. 1393 is the good one that would give us two years uh, before okay. the mandate would take effect, and then 1462 is – the bad one that would mm-hmm. add even uh, more requirements and limitations on the number and type of uh, work hours that would allow someone to sit for the exam. It seems so counterproductive to me when you're having trouble hiring people in the first place. And I mean, I can see where the training is necessary, but come on, you know, <laughs> if, if, if it's being done and being done is being done right, that's what counts, I guess. So anyway. It should <laughs> okay, uh, so sounds like Sony is losing their 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 battle, or not Sony? Apple is losing their battle on uh, the right to repair. Well, we hope that's the case, uh, and I know I've bored your listeners with this one uh, in the past. But uh, yes, the right to repair legislation uh, was up in the House and the Senate committees uh, this week. Uh, NFIB testified on both, and basically, what we're trying to do is to say that look, our small local um, computer repair companies should be able to purchase at fair market value the tools, the parts, the instructions, and other related documentation needed uh, to repair an iPhone when you drop it and the screen shatters uh, or when the the plug uh, connection wears out, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, or the camera or the flash go on the fritz. Uh, But instead, Apple thinks uh, every iPhone user ought to take their device uh, either to the geniuses at an Apple store uh, or take it to Best Buy. Uh, and in most cases, Best Buy's not doing the repairs. They're boxing these things up and they're mailing them into Apple. And if the phone is uh, more than three to five years old, Apple's not going to fix it. They're going to try and convince you to spend a 1000 or more dollars to, to get a replacement phone. And the same is true with some of the Apple uh, laptops. Um, and so we are working with a broad coalition to try and, and make it to where uh, individual uh, consumers as well as small repair shops would, again, have access to those tools and instructions and parts, um, not for free, but at fair market value in order to be able to make uh, same-day repairs in most cases so that when you come in with a shattered iPhone screen or a laptop mm-hmm. Uh, they'd be able to change out those things and get you on your way and do it for a lot less time and a lot less money than trying to track down a genius bar. Um, and that's assuming they can even fix it there, you know, in Bellevue or downtown Seattle. So the question I guess I've got is uh, what's happened in other states in this type of legislation? Do you have any input on that? Um, it has passed in, in a few other states. I think there's been some national legislation uh, introduced in fact, we had uh, one of the folks testify that they want to see a nationwide memorandum of understanding, uh, and they're talking about trying to follow more closely the law that's just passed in New York 
Um, although, of course, they're not satisfied in, with the entirety of the New York law, so they want to pick and choose parts of it uh, to use or to ignore. So it has been done in other states. New York just did it. Um, so Washington would not be the only one out there with this kind of an approach. And, in fact, this particular set of bills uh, seeks to model the New York uh, uh, proposal as, as much as possible so that we're avoiding the best we can having uh, a patchwork approach from state to state, which is, you know, NFIB is not a big fan of. Okay, so that, I noticed your little statistic here in the House panel. There was a hearing, and uh, 300 <laughs> yep. individuals signed in to show support for the legislation. There were zero opposed. There was one with uh, was other. So that's kind of interesting statistic. Too. Uh, yeah. uh, you got a couple notes here on a couple other bills you're trying to get done. Let's see if we can cover this in the next couple of minutes, and then we'll take a break, and we'll come back and talk about some of the stuff you've covered in your previous weeks. So. Uh, uh, you said you had Senate Bill 5061, personal records. Go ahead and just kind of hit those real quick, Patrick. Yeah, so under existing law, workers are entitled every year to ask their employer for a copy of their personnel file to review it and then to make uh, notation of anything that needs to be corrected and give that back to the employer. Um, the bill sponsor is an employment attorney in Bellevue and uh, is of the belief that without additional legislation putting more teeth out there, and in particular allowing a worker to sue an employer, uh, that we just wouldn't possibly get the information that that worker might need when they ask for their personnel file. But in fact, she has represented folks where the employer has, for whatever reason, refused to give the file at all or has refused to give all of the file. Um, <clears throat> our position has been it's already law. Uh, individual workers can ask for that file. The employer has an obligation to provide it and to make corrections if the corrections are warranted. There are some restrictions that she has that we don't like. We don't like the fact that now, instead of working this out between the employee and the employer and perhaps going through an agency process, uh, once again, she wants to make it to where it's sue first and sue only as your method uh, for a remedy. Uh, it also says it has to be an unredacted uh, copy of the file. and. We have some concerns that if a customer, a coworker, a supplier, some other third party uh, complains about a particular worker, and there happens to be a note in the employment file of who that individual was, that if the employer can't redact that name or that phone number, then all of a sudden uh, you're going to see, uh, you know, Richard Donahue, here's his phone number, here's his address, complained about Patrick Connor on this date. And so now uh, I get to find out who's complaining about me, and you know, hopefully, I won't take any retaliatory action. But you never really know these days, do you? That's for sure. So, okay, we'll go ahead and take yep. a quick break, Patrick, and we'll come back and talk about this homeowner record recovery and construction bonds and some of that stuff. And then let's kind of bounce back into some of your previous weeks. So we'll be right Great. back. Thanks for listening. Hello, folks. Are you ready to get your estate planning affairs in order, but you don't know where to start? Would you like to hear about the difference between wills and trusts? Do you want to learn how to avoid probate? Do you have questions about Social Security and Medicare? Is it important to you to make life as easy as possible on your spouse and loved ones if something should happen to you? This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham. Join me right here on KGMI every Saturday at 1 p.m. for the Aging Hour. And let me show you how to set your family up for success in your retirement. This is Heidi Person, General Manager of the Cascade Radio Group, with a look at some good news in our community that we like to call the upside. Serving members since 1936, WECU has served Whatcom County and the state of Washington for more than 80 years. This past fall, WECU announced the recipients of their Education First Grant Program, which supports local groups advancing education right here in Whatcom County. In total, the program awarded $110,000 to three local nonprofits making a positive impact to our community, including the Nooksack Salmon Enhancement Association, Pickford Film Center, and the Bellingham Child Care and Early Learning Center. To find out more, visit wecu.com slash education first. The Upside is brought to you from a grant provided by Bayside Coin and Jewelry. They are the largest buyer and seller of gold and silver in the Northwest. Bayside Coin and Jewelry in the Iowa Business Park. If you have good news to report, email it to us at theupside at cascaderadiogroup.com. KGMI Connects with Joe Tian is about our community and you. Hey, I, I want to uh, agree with the uh, with what Michelle said as far as you uh, 
listening very good to everybody and being open to every conversation, which is, I think, why so many people call. Join us each weekday at 4 p.m. for KGMI Connects. God bless you, Joe, for what you're doing, and, and we're glad to have you out there. On KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back and welcome back to Live to Donahue this Saturday morning. We are Asset Advisors located out in Ferndale. Questions for us, give us a call, 360-733-1200. Going to continue our discussion today with Patrick Connor, who's the State Director for the National Federation of Independent Business. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about this construction bond and, and contractor bonds and home recovery fund real quick here. You bet. And actually, this one uh, turns out is a pretty decent bill that I think we're going to have uh, near universal agreement on uh, because it's been worked properly. The uh, bill sponsor reached out to business uh, as well as to labor and to aggrieved consumers. Uh, we met, we explored statutes in different states and came up with a, an overall proposal that I think while not everybody loves, everybody can live with, and we hope that it makes uh, life a little bit easier for some of those consumers who have been taken advantage of uh, by some unscrupulous contractors. So I think we've all heard of those cases where you'll get somebody coming door-to-door and tell you that they're going to have an asphalt truck in a neighborhood uh, the next day or the next week, and they'd be happy to fill those potholes or to touch up a driveway or do those kinds of things. Um and you'll get a discount, but only if you sign the paperwork today um, or after a big storm, uh, damage, that kind of stuff. Uh, same kind of thing. People coming door to door telling you that they are going to have a roofing crew in town you know, the next week. And if you sign up today and pay them a deposit, that they'll come fix your roof uh, and you'll save lots of money. And those things usually end up being scams. Okay. So the bill basically says that uh, if the homeowner has worked with a registered contractor and has had a poor quality job, been left unsatisfied, the contractor didn't show up, took the money and ran. Uh, There's an opportunity after you exhaust the bond amount and go through the complaint process that uh, that homeowner uh, might be able to get up to $25,000 through a new homeowner recovery fund. And in addition, uh, it increases the bond amounts for general contractors and specialty contractors for the first time in about 20 years uh, because the current $12,000 bond level for a general contractor and uh, $6,000 for a specialty contractor like a plumber or an electrician has proven to be insufficient when these jobs are abandoned um, or if there's, you know, gross misconduct, terribly shoddy workmanship, those kinds of things. So... Bond will go to about three hundred. Uh, the bond will go up to thirty thousand dollars for a general contractor, fifteen thousand for a specialty contractor, uh, and because these are insurance policies, uh, it's not like you have to come up with thirty thousand dollars. The likelihood is that the increase will be perhaps a couple of hundred dollars at worst uh, in a year for those insurance policies, um, and then there's also a new penalty schedule for those folks who. Um, are caught and prosecuted for this kind of repeat bad behavior that the fines and penalties assessed on them will be used to uh, fund this homeowner recovery account. And is that money homeowner recovery fund coming from the state? Well, it really is coming from the the bad actors, the contractors who, you know, take your money and run, don't show up, don't do the job, or claim that they've ordered materials. You get, you know, a couple sticks of lumber that show up and then they never come back. And then I see there's an amendment to the state constitution regarding the uh, uh, business personal property values. So what is that? Yeah, we're finalizing that. Yep. So every business in the state is required on, as of noon, January 1st, to take inventory of every roll of toilet paper, (laughs) uh, every uh, chewed up pen in the drawer, all your tools, your machinery, your equipment, uh, your signage. Um, your paper clips, I mean, uh, cleaning supplies, you name it, uh, unless it is inventory to be resold to a customer or if taking it uh, off of the premises would damage the premises, basically you've got to report that to the county assessor. The county assessor takes them a year to figure out what the value of that is based on that value, how much tax you owe. 
And so you're paying the following year for the previous year's inventory, uh, and it's a giant hassle. So uh, we think we have an agreement to move forward with creating a $40,000 um, threshold uh, below which the tax would not apply and where the accounting assessors could have a business owner uh, self-certify that their assets uh, of that type of asset is less than $40,000 and not have to fill out all the paperwork. And that's an amendment uh, to the state constitution, so I assume that's going to have to be voted on, right? Yep. Correct. It would be. So there's two parts to it. Yes, there's a, an amendment that would go out uh, for a vote of the people in November, and then there's also the uh, enacting statute that would get into some of the details about how to administer the, the exemption. So okay. there's a tiny exemption on the books right now, $15,000 if you are a widow or widower, the head of household, um, or if you are on an old person's pension, that tells you how old this statute is, <laughs> Uh, yeah. then that individual can take up to $15,000 as a deduction from their um, business uh, assets that would be subject to the business personal property tax. Okay. Let's uh, jump back to your week three summary uh, item that caught my eye here was the margins tax. That sounds like a really major piece of legislation. It does. Uh, really interesting. So I think as a lot of folks know, the dreaded business and occupation tax, the no tax in our state, is a relic, uh, a temporary tax that was passed uh, roughly in the Depression era um, that was supposed to be uh, <laughs> replaced long before now. But as much as everybody despises the B&O tax, we've been unable to agree on a replacement for it. So the margin tax would do something different um, than what we do under the B&O, where if you're a business owner, you're paying the B&O tax, uh, you're paying it on every dollar of revenue you bring in, regardless of whether or not you make a profit, uh, which means the government gets paid before you or your workers do. Uh, the margin I, I know tax, well. I know well. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> so instead, the margin every tax month. <laughs> would, <laughs> would give workers an op- or I'm sorry, give business owners an opportunity to choose a couple of different approaches. Uh, obviously, the one small business likes best uh, is a million-dollar threshold before uh, you'd have to pay tax. So, if you so the first, so the first revenue, million dollars, you wouldn't. So, you're saying a business with less than a million dollars, or they wouldn't pay tax on that in, that right. that amount less than a million, or Correct. if they go over a million, do they pay tax on the whole thing? Uh, we're still trying to dig into the details, but my understanding is the, uh, you can you can deduct a million dollars regardless of the size of your business. But for a small business, if your revenue is a million dollars or less, that million dollars or less means there's no tax. And in fact, you wouldn't even have to file uh, a tax return if it's under five hundred thousand dollars. I mean, right now, technically, a business a service business like my own, if mm-hmm. you've got a uh, million dollars in revenue, you're paying about fifteen thousand dollars in B and O taxes currently. Yeah. That would go to zero. Yeah. That's uh, and then, so that's one approach. Uh, another approach would be to allow businesses to deduct, uh, it's their choice, either a flat amount, uh, like a percentage. So hypothetically, you could deduct 30% of your gross and then pay the tax on the remaining uh, 70%. Uh, if you are uh, in service and most of your uh spending is going out to cover wages, then compensation could be deducted instead. If you are in retail, manufacturing, wholesaling, uh, where most of your expense to the business is in cost of goods sold, you could deduct that and pay the tax on the remainder. And then there's one new approach that uh, was added in at the last minute. Uh, for businesses between 2 and $5 million, if I remember correctly, uh, they could use this new easy pay approach where it would be a flat tax rate of 1.75%. Um, Which is higher than what they're paying right now in the B&O tax in most cases. Well, it depends. Yeah, service businesses over a million dollars right now are paying 1.75. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, the the new tax, and this is where, where the rub is, that even with the deductions, it would increase, and the estimate right now is about 3% would be the tax rate across the board. So a 3% tax rate uh, would allow then anybody under a million dollars to get off without having to pay the tax, and then also helps with that offset of about 30% cost of goods sold or uh, uh, compensation costs. 
So uh, there are different choices, and a business can make the one that makes the most sense given their particular structure, uh, their income streams, and their expenditures. So we've got a couple minutes here before we have to get out of here, but uh, how does this mesh with the uh, state income tax argument that the state Supreme Court heard? heard? Have you heard? I mean, how is it not an income tax? I've always, (laughs) I mean, you know, I know they've gotten around it all these years, but how is it not an income tax? Um. It I'm is. sorry for the hesitation. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think that it is. It's, okay. So in Washington State, the B&O is an excise tax. Mm-hmm. So you've got to pay the tax for the um, privilege of doing business in Washington State. Okay. The margins tax uh, takes the same approach, but it allows a certain uh, one type of deduction to be taken by a business. Um, So it reduces your gross, but it it, – and apparently there is a distinction between that and um, an income tax. And I'm not an attorney, so I hesitated because I'm I'm trying to make sure I'm not making legal arguments here that would get me in trouble. I just figured you hear all these arguments going on down there all the time. You might have some input on it. So uh, anyway, we've got about 30 seconds left. Is there anything we need to mention that we haven't mentioned today that really should jump out there real quick that may be still pending? I think the pace is going to pick up. Uh, We've got until February 17th uh, for policy bills to make it out of committee. And so uh, it's kind of been the calm before the storm, but I think that uh, we will see quite a bit more activity in the next couple of weeks leading up to that first cutoff. Well, let's kind of plan on coming back. Uh, I guess the 3rd of March would be uh, a Saturday again here, uh, or the 4th of March, I guess. If that works in your schedule, we'll come back in a month and we'll go through some of these stuff again. Sounds great. Appreciate the invitation. Hey, thanks, Patrick. Appreciate your being all the good information today. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here at KGMI. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And if you got questions for us, give us a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks and have a great week. voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.